Hi, Sandy. All right, guys. Uh, Bible study time. Ready to dig in. I'm excited to uh, continue our study of Philippians, joyful together. And um, as last week, we got through a few verses, but it was king up this week. I'm going to begin to really one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament. I really can't overstate the significance. unmute myself on the on the zoom there can you hear me sandy okay good you know a year and a half of doing this stuff and we're almost getting it now but okay sorry any lingering questions or comments from last week's uh study of philippians before we get to this week's section okay well just a reminder of the context um in the first few verses of of chapter two um paul is is expressing if there's any encouragement in christ any comfort from love and we said last week we should really read those ifs as more like a sense, since these things are the case. And he's just, I don't want to say he's laying it on thick, but he's really trying to emphasize to them, hey, look, this is who you are. These are the gifts that you have received. If all this is true. Then complete my joy. We said that's the only verb in the whole um, passage here. Complete my joy. How do you complete his joy? By being together, right? By being together, being of one mind, one heart not looking out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others, not just looking out for number one, but also looking out for, for others. And um, we said that the key to unity is humility. The key to unity is humility. Now, what, um, what we're going to look at now is so typical of Paul, because one way to do that is Paul could say, okay, now here is your step-by-step -step guide for uh, achieving humility. <laughs> but that's not the way he works. He's always thinking theologically, or I should say Christologically. He always looked to come off the top rope, as it were, and just come down on the this incredible capsule of his whole ministry. So let me read aloud for you the, the whole passage and then we'll um, circle back around. So starting with chapter two, Philippians verse five, Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by be becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Okay, uh, well, first of all, is anybody you happen to have or using a Bible other than the ones that we've got in the pew? Carla, how does your uh, passage look? Is there anything... Oh, okay. I have, have the same mindset. That brings out that this is a relational thing that, uh, that Paul's getting at here. Uh, is, did you notice anything different about the way that the lines are broken down? Exactly. Okay, good. So what Carla said, and what translation is that? The NIV. So, um, and, and some translations will bring this out. She said, it's indented. Um, almost like it's a poem. So picture the way that a, a poem or our Psalms break down where it's like a line by line rather than just in a block text. And that's actually appropriate because in this case, we can tell from the, from the Greek in which it was written in that Paul is either writing or quoting a poem or more to the point, a hymn. He's actually um, laying out a hymn text. And we don't know, is Paul the author of this hymn? Or is he quoting from a hymn that was already established? If that's the case, in some ways, that's uh, even more mind-blowing. Because Philippians is written just within a generation after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. If already there were uh, poems, hymns, being distributed among the church with this kind of profound theology, that's like, whoa. And that could be the case. Um, but whether or not Paul wrote it or if he's quoting from somebody else, um, this is no doubt a hymn text, which is really cool. I mean, when you think about how hymns and how the music of the church forms our faith, right? Today, we sang a couple of my very favorite hymns, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and I Know That My Redeemer Lives, right? Just two powerful, beautiful hymns. And you have those words, they kind of bounce around in your, in your mind and in your heart. When I visit folks, um, whether it be in... Um, uh, in the hospital or if they're in a nursing home, like many times they'll be able to sing these hymns without a hymnal in front of them, right? And even as has sometimes been the case, and certainly it was with Pat, even when um, the, the mind is not fully attentive in other ways, still, I mean, Pat knew the word, we could sing hymns with her up to the very end, couldn't we? Um, because the, the hymns of the church, that music met with the word of God, well, Luther would say music was the second best gift after the word of God, than music. And when they're combined, it's just really powerful. So just something to um, bring to your attention there, that this is, Paul is either quoting or perhaps writing a hymn of the church. So in this, in this hymn, uh, it really tells of the story of Jesus in two acts. Okay. So I want to um, set out these two acts of the story. You might think of these two acts as humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation and exaltation, um, of the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. And maybe just a word on humiliation. So humility, uh, humiliation, these all come from the same root word, human. They all come from the same word, which is, Esther, the humus, right? The dirt, because you're my dirt person <laughs> as, a, as a gardener. From yeah, that's right. Uh, it, 
it all comes from the same root word connected to humus, the dirt, the soil. So the word Adam, going back to the Hebrew now, so in the beginning, um, Adam in the garden, Adam is from the Hebrew word Adam, which literally means the ground, the earth, because Adam was taken out of the ground. He's, he's the earthling, you might say, okay? He's taken from the Adama. Um, and we, we still have that in our English as humans, we're taken from the humus, dust you are to dust you shall return. But I mentioned all that to say, well, what does it mean to be humiliated? It's when you get brought back down to earth, hmm. <laughs> right? And when we talk about the humiliation of Jesus, it doesn't mean like when everybody was, well, I was going to say, it doesn't mean everybody pointing their finger at him and saying, ha ha, although that was the case, right? Um, but it's more just the sense of Jesus coming down to earth, as it says here, emptying himself. That's what we mean when we talk about humiliation. Yeah, Carla. Yeah. He made himself nothing. Emptying himself. Yeah. So because it's a as this visual image, right, of Christ Jesus. Well, let's let's just walk through it here. So uh, verse six who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally, he didn't count it, he didn't consider it robbery. Um, it wasn't unjust for him to be considered equal with God the Father. And right here in just one verse, we have everything that we confess, like in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is, is equal with God the Father. He's not just, you know, the greatest human being, but he is truly the son of God. He didn't count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. And uh, this is an interesting note, too, on the language. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It could also be translated, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What's the difference in the shade of meaning there? Well, though expresses that sense of it's a concession, okay? But because... so. For the very reason, this is what God is like, in other words. God is a God who is a giving God, who is pouring himself out for the sake of his people. And so we could look at it as Jesus, even though he was equal with God, he did this. And I think that's certainly the case. But we might also look at it as Jesus, precisely because he is equal with God as the son of God. Well, this is just, this is his nature, that the nature of God is self-giving is pouring himself out um, so that verse seven, I mean, it just kind of tumbles along, but emptied himself. As Carla says, some translations say made himself nothing, but yeah, it's literally he emptied himself. You think of the way that Mary poured out the perfume um, uh, and uh, anointed Jesus's feet. So Jesus poured himself out. He poured himself out. He um, divested himself in a sense of his divinity. He didn't stop being the son of God, obviously. He didn't stop having that um, divine power. But what he does in the incarnation is he sets aside his divine prerogative. In other words, he like willingly, well, think of it like this. When I was in high school, um, they used to have a home economics class. I don't even know if they do this anymore. They probably don't. Uh, Emily, do they still have home ec? Is Okay. 
So they, they kind of bracket up. So some of the skills are still being taught. That's good. So there, um, one part of it for this class um, was that uh, the teenage girls would have an opportunity for like one unit to put on a fake pregnant belly. Okay. Uh, you know, it's one of these things you just kind of strap on and walk around. Some of them didn't have to put on a fake one. Okay. That's still, that's still the case. Right. Um, but for others, they put on, they strapped on the, the fake belly and would go around for a week with this, with this on so that they could learn what it's like to be carrying a sack of potatoes everywhere you go. <laughs> it was a way of willingly um, taking away some of their power. Um, and in this case, for the sake of learning, but this is, um, this is kind of what it's like with Jesus as he empties himself. He willingly um, gives himself this limitation, this handicap, if you will, for the sake of us, for the sake of us, becoming like us in every way except for sin. And why would he do that? Well, I mean, we could think of a lot of different reasons, but just off the top of your head, why was it important for God to empty himself in this way? Why was it important for Jesus to become man? Just what's the first thing that pops into your head? Yeah. Okay, so he could identify with us. Um, scriptures say because he came uh, as a man, he's able to sympathize with us in all of our struggles, in all of our challenges that we face. Yeah, why else? It's tough. I mean, it's one of these things that we just kind of take for granted, right? Well, why? yeah, why would he do that? So that he could be crucified. And why does he need to be crucified? I mean, just to belabor the point. Um, as, a, as a sacrifice. And yeah. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Oh, this is good. And this is Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews makes a point that um, it can't, if it's going to be a once for all sacrifice, then it has to be a sinless sacrifice, see? And so Jesus, uh, as the son of God, empties himself and takes on our human flesh so that he can be crucified to sacrifice himself as he identifies with us and is able in that way to be the bridge. See, if, uh, if there is not that, that sacrifice of a perfect human being, then we are forever separated from heaven between God and man. But Jesus in his very person, by being fully God and fully man, he's able to bridge heaven and earth. See, uh, there's a little poem. I quoted it at Christmas time. I don't know if I still remember it. Just a little poem that says, you did the unthinkable. You built a bridge long enough, strong enough to link the unlinkable. <laughs> He did the unthinkable. You built a bridge to us long enough, strong enough to link the unlinkable. That, I mean, in a poetic way of putting it, is what the incarnation is all about. Jesus coming into our flesh, linking the unlinkable. Okay, to this end, then, he pours himself out. He empties himself, even though he's God, in another sense, because he is God, he humbled himself by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only does Jesus become a human being, but he becomes the lowliest of human beings, right? He is, he is born 
of a, a young girl um, peed him and thought that he was a, a child of an unwed mother, which was a, a marginalizing thing. Um, and so he, he himself, he does not come um, as outwardly as a king, as a prince, as somebody who's able to just call the shots, but he comes essentially as a peasant. I mean, we know he's the son of a, a carpenter, of a tradesman, a blue collar worker, you might say. Everything about our Lord's life and existence shows that he came not uh, in order to just be high and mighty, but be low. For us, part of his was finally the point of death. We talk about this a lot. There's the, the shamefulness of death on a cross. Um, the Greek statesman um, Cicero, Roman statesman Cicero, um, he, in writing about, well, he was, he mentions crucifixion and passing, and then he just stops mid sentence and says, it's too shameful for us even to talk about. Uh, it was something that was just abhorred in that culture, ultimate indignity, see, of him going down to the very dregs of society in order they might drag us back up, see. This is the humiliation of our Lord. Okay, let me pause there. That's kind of the first act of the story as, Jesus, as Paul sets it out in this, in this hymn. It's Jesus's coming. Um, well, you think of that, that song, kind of that camp song or Sunday school song. He came from heaven to earth. To show the way from the earth to the cross, my dead to pay. You guys know this, come on. From the cross to the grave. I'll stop right there. Um, that, that song kind of captures the movement, right? It came from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, down, 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 down. How deep uh, the Father's love for us. There's another song. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. That, well, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. My Savior came down. All right. Thus, act one of the story. Okay, so any questions or, or reflections about it? Yeah, Esther. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's very good. Right. Yes. We empty out the eye. That's right. So in doing this, Jesus not only accomplishes this for us on our behalf, but he also provides uh, the model and the example for us to follow. For us, and this really gets to Paul's reason for having quoting this whole hymn right here is he wants to be encouraging and exhorting the Philippians to live in humility. And he's saying this, you have this mind in you, the mind of Christ. See, you have the mind of Christ and therefore you also pour yourself out for the sake of others. We're going to hear that language here later in Philippians chapter two, but that's very much the idea. And, and that's there as well. Any other questions or thoughts about the first part of, of this hymn in Philippians two? Okay, so then act two, as it were, is the exaltation. So it's, 
it has this kind of um, graphic direction. So down, 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 down. Now in verse nine, it's going to turn and it's going to take a positive upward turn. Therefore, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Ooh, we'll come back to that. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. All right. Whew, there's, a, there's a lot here. So first verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. Well, get there. So he's highly exalted him. The resurrection is also at the same time, a vindication. Okay. A vindication of God saying, my son was right in his faithfulness. Though everyone else rejected him, though even the religious leaders castigated him and put him up on a cross. Jesus's resurrection is a vindication of God the Father saying, yes, this is still my beloved son. In Romans chapter one, verse four, it says he was declared the son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. So that by his coming back, bursting forth from the grave, here we see, yes, Jesus was right all along. And he doesn't come back to do a gigantic, although he could have, I told you so, right? But he still comes back in mercy and in grace for us. But we don't want to lose sight of this, that the resurrection is the vindication, the exaltation of the son. But then you get this from, from Paul, and this is where it really gets um, wild and important to uh, where it really emphasizes who Jesus is as the son of God. It said, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Okay, so from a biblical perspective, what is the name that is above every name? Think especially from like what we would call an Old Testament perspective. You mentioned, mentioned it already, Esther. Yeah, the Hebrew was Yahweh or I am. In our uh, translations, and um, usually this is when you just see the Lord in all caps, that is this Hebrew name. The fancy word for it is tetragrammaton, okay? So you can... Uh, share that with all your friends. We were talking about the Tetragrammaton today at Bible study. Uh, let me just tell you what that is. Um, that would have been considered the name that is above every name. In fact, um, Jews would just say, refer to Hashem, the name. That's the Hebrew for the name, Hashem, as kind of a shorthand for talking about um, the, the name of the Lord because they wanted to honor the um, commandment you, know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so they wouldn't even say the name. They would just say, Hashem, the name. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, but notice this. Uh, if, keep your finger in Philippians and turn to Isaiah chapter 45. As uh, Paul rather explicitly is making this connection. Uh, let's see. All right, so uh, Isaiah chapter, this is page 607 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 45, starting with um, verse 22. This is God speaking. This is the Lord. He says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no what? Other, there is no other, that's it. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth, has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. And notice this, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 
to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue swear allegiance. Now switch back to Philippians chapter two. And Paul writes, he receives the name that is above every name so that at the name of what? Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Notice the deft move that Paul has made here. I mean, he has given us a whole, a whole uh, textbook of theology just by in this little turn of phrase showing us that Jesus is to be identified with God the Father. I mean, this is like deep Trinitarian theology, but just in a few words. Jesus is the one uh, before whom every knee will bow. Well, wait a second. I thought he, that, the, that the Lord Yahweh, that I am, that he is God and there is no other. That's true. So how can we bow our knee to Jesus and say that he is God? He's also God. And then we start talking about the Holy Spirit. We're worshiping the Holy Spirit too. This is how the doctrine of the Trinity was really formalized among the early church. Uh, opponents or skeptics of Christianity will say, well, wait a second. The word Trinity never shows up in the Bible, which is true. It's a word that was um, coined to describe the reality that is depicted in the scriptures, which is one God, three persons. Okay. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He is the Lord. He is to be identified with the I am of the Old Testament. And Paul, as he's expressing this, that exaltation, he says, so every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does this raise any questions for you? Or is there anything about that that sounds a little bit funny to you? Yeah, Gordon. Okay, Gordon's question is, how many people believe in Jesus, but don't believe in God? And Jesus would say, it's not possible. Uh, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That if you believe in me, you believe in, in the Father. So I think there's people who might um, admire Jesus that don't believe in God. In other words, there's folks who look to Jesus as a good teacher, as a moral leader or something. Um, but if you actually believe in and trust in, in Jesus as Savior, then you're, you also necessarily believe in God too. Yeah. Say anything else? Whoops. Um, questions that about, yeah, Tara. Yeah. Yeah, right. So what Tara points out is like, even the demons. I mean, when Paul talks of under the earth, what's he talking about there? He's talking about Hades. He descended into hell. Now, there's, there's multiple reasons why he descended into hell. One reason is this is just the natural consequence of him taking on all the sin of the world. Like he, he is damned in our place. See, But then it goes one step further because it's not only that, it's also, so to speak, a victory lap. As Jesus goes down into hell and uh, Dante in his great divine comedy in the Inferno, he really imaginatively brings us out that G that earthquake that happens at the crucifixion that comes all the way up from hell from under the earth as Dante sets it out that all of a sudden you know, the rocks are breaking and Satan is screaming no and every knee has to bow before Jesus as the true and rightful Lord now and so every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord what does this mean 
some people have pointed this and say, okay, does this mean that at the end of the day, every person will be saved? I think that that's pressing this too far. I think what it is saying is that at the end of the day, which is to say at the end of time, everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord, either gladly, joyfully, willingly, or through gritted teeth, right? Um, It's like C.S. Lewis says, the door of hell is locked from the inside. See, if anyone is in hell, it's because they do not ultimately want to confess the name of Jesus gladly, but say, you know what? All right, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that, Lord. I'm, I'm going to go my own way. If I won't say, I'm going to say my will be done instead of thy will be done to the uttermost. Uh, this, I mean, this is a powerful, you can't get a more kind of universal claim of the lordship of Jesus. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Okay, so that's kind of just the, the big picture of this passage of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, this great hymn which, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, of kind of takeaways here. First of all, I want to say everything is theological, okay? So from a sense, Paul is really overstating his case. He's really overdoing it. Like, Paul, you've just got some issues, some people may be quibbling in the church, and there might be some issues with unity, and Paul just brings out all the guns. <laughs> talking about Jesus' humiliation, his exaltation, every knee should bow. So can you please be kinder to each other? It's like, whoa, seems like overkill, Paul. But understand from Paul's perspective, everything is theological. And I think that we could all do well to have more of this perspective. We're not all theologians the way that Paul is. But seeing that even those simple things um, that we go through in day-to-day life, we shouldn't separate those from these uh, spiritual and divine realities, see, the, the everyday stuff, how, how we take care of our kids, how we use our money, right? how we deal with our neighbors, all of these things have this um, spiritual component to it, to recognize everything is, is theological in that sense. Secondly, it's important to, to recognize there's no Easter without Good Friday. There's no Easter without Good Friday. I mean, with those two acts really emphasize the humiliation comes before the exaltation. There's no exaltation if there's no humiliation. There's no real Easter without Good Friday. And that's just, that's a, a truth about our everyday lives. How does, how does the Lord cause us to grow and to grow closer to him? It's through this pattern of death and resurrection. We'd love to be able to just skip the death part. Like, can we just, you know, fast forward right to resurrection, right to Easter? And we just go around Good Friday, and we can't. See, and by Good Friday, I mean this in, in the most general sense of the way that we, uh, we die to ourselves, the way that we repent of our sin, the way that we, uh, as Martin Luther would put it, mortify our flesh. <laughs> and sometimes, when we specifically talk about humility, well, I often think of praying for humility is the most dangerous prayer you can ask for. Because many times, how do we grow in humility? You got to get humiliated, (laughs) get brought down. And so to pray for humility, it's a good prayer. It's a necessary prayer, but it's also a dangerous prayer because that's how the Lord's going to do it. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 
It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's right. And it's because Sunday's coming, we're able to endure Friday, right? I mean, people, how can it be called Good Friday? Only from the perspective of, of Easter Sunday, right? Yeah, Gordon, did you have your hand up? No, okay. Um, okay, so no Easter without Good Friday. And again, we said this last week, the bottom line from this passage, Jesus wins. <laughs> Jesus wins. He's humiliated, but that doesn't have the last word. He is exalted. And because of that, we have that assurance that he ultimately has the victory. All right. Any last thoughts or questions on that passage? Again, we could spend weeks just un unfolding all that's right there. But Okay. I want to um, spend our last uh, 10 or 12 minutes with the next few verses here in Philippians 2, because there's some neat stuff uh, as Paul continues. So he pivots, verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18 for you now. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and, and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should rejoice. You should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, so Paul lays out that beautiful hymn of Jesus, and then verse 12 pivots to therefore. And as I often say, when you see the therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore, right? What he's, this is where Paul now is, is go, going to the application and bringing it home. And he's, he, he brings it to um, obedience. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay. Now, especially as Lutherans, we hear that. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Work out your salvation. Uh, Elizabeth, honey, I'm coming to join you. Like, what? there's a dated reference. Um, work out our salvation. Salvation isn't a result of works. It's by grace through faith. But nothing Paul is saying here runs counter to that. You might instead think of it like this. It's like Paul is looking at our salvation as like this great big gift or box of gifts. And when he says, work out your own salvation, what he's saying in a sense is unpack that gift. Already, everything has been given to you. It's what we think of as justification. Already, it's all yours. Now, unpack that gift. Unfold the implications of what that means that you are saved, that you are justified, that you are forgiven. See, now you are unpacking, unfolding that gift. This is what the, the, the idea of working out your salvation, not working for your salvation, but working it out, figuring out all that it means and how it affects and impacts every corner of your life. In theological language, we call this sanctification or our continued growth in holiness, becoming more and more like Jesus. And notice the paradox of sanctification. I love, love a good paradox. So notice this back-to-back -back verses. Verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. All right, Paul. So which is it? It says, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says, 
for God is at work in you. So who is it? Is it you or is it God? Class? Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Both. It's both of these. This is why it's a paradox. See, it, it would seem to be mutually exclusive. No, either it's me or it's God. But from the biblical perspective, no. This is a paradox. It's holding both of seemingly contradictory things, holding them both, upholding them both as true at the same time. See, you might think of it this way, that in sanctification, we are actively passive. We are actively passive. So on the one hand, Paul wants to say, we are active. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, okay? Uh, th this is, it's, it's up to you to be vigilant and diligent to strive to practice spiritual disciplines, to pray to the Lord, to serve your neighbor. These are active things that we do as branches to the vine, right? But last week we talked about this. As branches to the vine, we are also at the same time, what? Passive. It's God is the one who works in you. It's 100% you. It's up to you. It's 100% God. I mean, there's that phrase that is used sometimes, uh, work as though it all depends on you, pray as though it all depends on God. It's another way of saying the same thing we're talking about here. It's both of those at the same time, upholding that paradox that God is at work in you. And so we press on, strive to be faithful. At the end of the day, we know God works in us. And it's, it's both of those together. Does that make sense? So paradoxes can be hard to wrap our mind around, but uh, we want to keep both of those together. Yeah, Esther. Okay, good. That's a good answer. So it doesn't make sense, but I believe it, right? Yeah. 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 Right. Yep. Yes. That's exactly right. That's very well put. Um, recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit within us frees us to seek to do everything that we can do without feeling the pressure, like, am I doing enough? Well, I mean, because if that's the question, the answer always has to be, no, you're not doing enough. There's always more that you could be doing, right? And that crushing burden of the law weighs us down. Christ says, let me take that burden on myself, see? And I am the one to will and to work in you to my good pleasure. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Verse six of chapter one, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion and on and on it goes, see? So yeah, we, we strive, we toil, we labor, but it's God who is working in us and with us and through us. If you just have one side of that on either side, you fall off. If you just focus on the active side, you'll get burnt out. You'll get frustrated. You'll become a, a self-righteous legalist, right? Where you're just always, you get mad at other people when they like cross you because don't you understand? I have to live the perfect life. Like, Okay, looks like you got work to do still. Uh, if you just focus on the active side, if you just focus on the passive side, hey, God's going to do it. I can just hang out. I'm just going to stay in my shorts, watch boob tube all day. Sometimes that's good. But uh, you know, if, if you just have that attitude like, okay, I, am not, I don't need to be active in my sanctification, you miss that as well. 
we live in that tension of both of them uh, of the, and recognizing we receive everything from God and then as the branch to the vine, so we continue to grow. All right. Yeah, go ahead, Gordon. When you say doing this, you mean being Christians? Indeed, yes. That we should be doing this seven days a week and not just Sunday morning. Yeah, that's. I mean, it, it goes along with uh, something I talked about in the sermon this morning of Jesus as our friend, as our companion on the way. And I chose, I didn't mention it in the sermon, but on the front of the worship folder today, I, I uh, chose this um, beautiful painting. It's of um, Jesus with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And actually, Helen Cedarholm gave us... Um, a copy of this painting. It's in the library. I haven't hung it up yet, but we, we have it. And what I love about it is just how that sense of Jesus is, he's hanging out with these guys. It's the day of his resurrection. And Jesus decides, you know what? I've got time for a seven mile hike with uh, two nincompoops. <laughs> this just underscores Jesus as our friend. He's, he always has time for you and me. I, that's the thing that as a uh, a dad who too often is harried and in a hurry and trying to do too many things and always feeling like I don't have enough time for other people the way that I want to. This is just pure grace to see Jesus always has time, right? Like I've gotten into this habit. Maybe you have too. like, I don't call people so much as I first, I text them. Can I, you know, is this a good time to talk? I've got, you have to do the pre, the pre-interview before you can actually do it because we're, we're all like so busy and you want to be respectful of that. We don't have to do that with Jesus. Jesus, is this a good time? Okay, I can try another time. It's cool. No, he's like, yes, it's always a good time for our Lord. What a blessing. What a gift. All right, a few, few more thoughts here then. Verses 14 through 18. Paul um, continues this trajectory of, okay, here are the, here's the results of as we are unpacking the salvation. It's interesting. What he points to is, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, that's the direction he goes. Ungrumbling, you might say. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, to unpack salvation? Not to grumble. And he, he sets out several gifts of ungrumbling. He says that um, in doing so, we're blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We don't have time to go there right now, but he's... He is um, evoking Deuteronomy chapter 32, which was the song that God instructed Moses to teach the people of Israel. Basically, it was a song to convict them of their sins as they go away from him in the future. And it uses that phrase, the twisted and uh, corrupt generation, saying, by ungrumbling, you show yourselves to be true children of God. Secondly, he says, um, in doing so, you shine like lights. Where did I lost my spot? Uh, you shine as lights in the world. Isn't that true? Like in our contemporary society, even like when you meet somebody who's not just complaining all the time, like, wow, there's something different about you. We're all just given to grumbling a lot. You know, you go to get your oil change. Can you believe how long this oil change place takes? I know these guys are horrible. I hate it. I keep having, I just have to come. You, you know, you're in the line at the grocery store. Could they hurry it up? What, the, what is the problem here? Rather than, well, I like to quote G.K. Chesterton in this respect. We, we uh, misdiagnose an inconvenience, he says, is an adventure wrongly understood. 
An inconvenience is an adventure wrongly understood. In other words, many times those things that we grumble about, we would have eyes to see, hey, maybe God's up to something right here. Maybe this is a conversation, or maybe it's just an opportunity. I've got to sit here. Maybe it's just an opportunity for, for prayer or for reflection. Ungrumbling makes you shine as lights. Thirdly, a gift of ungrumbling is holding fast to the word of, of, of Christ. This could all, otherwise be translated holding out the word of life. It's not just holding fast, but holding out the word of life, bringing forth that good news to others. And then finally, Paul says, in doing so, we are honoring, we, we honor our leaders. Um, as Paul points out, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Remember, we heard how Jesus pours himself out. Now, Paul, following in his footsteps, pours himself out for the sake of the Philippians. And he says, listen, when you guys don't grumble, you make me proud. See, you make me proud. And this is a self-serving pastor moment here, but you know, it brings me great joy when God's people live in unity together, when they're not just grumbling or grousing about stuff. Wait a second, that's not how things used to be. <laughs> it's always our favorite thing within the church, right? Uh, but instead to rejoice, be grateful. And if you've got a beef, to bring it to the person that you've got it to so that you can work it out together and so maintain the unity of the body. But the bottom line with this section is salvation is a broad country that we have been brought into, baptized into, and it's for us to explore, to continue to work it out, to unpack, to unfold. What are the implications and the ramifications of the fact that I belong to Jesus? What do I do now that I don't have to do anything? It's a great question and one we ought to be continually asking. So next week, we'll um, continue, we'll pick up in, uh, with verse 19 as we continue our study joyful together of the letter of Philippians. Thanks, guys, for joining us today. We'll see you then.